Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Futility, a novel on Russian themes by William Gerhardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Chapter 8 Who can convey at all adequately that sense of utter hopelessness that clings to a Siberian winter night? Wherever else is there to be found that brooding, thrilling sense of frozen space, of snow and ice lost in inky darkness, that gruesome sense of never-ending night, and black despair and loneliness untold, immeasurable. Add to this the knowledge of a civil war fumbling in the snow, of people ill-fed, ill-clothed, and apathetic, lying on the frozen ground, cold and wretched and diseased. A snowstorm is blowing furiously. The wooden house groans and yells in the night. The tin roof squeals in agony, fearful lest it be cast to the winds. And the storm now howls like a beast, now sobs like a child, now dies away, gathering for another outburst. The house was lit and warm, and comfortable. It was the Admiral's house. But the Admiral was away, and in his absence I had conceived it possible to give a dinner-party. The arrangement of the guests at table had been a delicate but delicious business. I had placed Fanny Ivanovna at the side of Magda Nikolaevna. I had seated Nikolai Vasilievich side by side with Eisenstein. I had sprinkled some of Zina's sisters amongst the three sisters. And there was Sir Hugo, who talked in French about the Russian situation to Zina's mother, who feared God and knew no French. And it was evident, moreover, as he talked, that his daily paper was not the Daily Herald, but rather the Morning Post. The table was littered with bottles of the very best wine, procured from the Admiral's private cellar, and the expression of my guests became, as they do become under the influence of wine, more impulsive and less amenable to the control of the will. Their will seemed, as the feast proceeded, to become less and less amenable to the authority of the conscience. Knyats had been drinking cocktails wholesale. He had never tasted one before and found that his life had been wasted. They are exquisite, he said. They are, Sir Hugo said. They induce one to forget their price. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean it in that way, Prince. Do have another cocktail. I sat still among my guests, strangely flushed, and the vast sea of Russian life seemed to be closing over me. I saw Fanny Ivanovna talking to Magda Nikolaevna, somewhat timidly, perhaps, and with undue reserve, but still talking. Eisenstein was gleaming with silent satisfaction as he surveyed the family. He felt, I think, that he was one of it at last, and now he was all right. Nikolai Vasilievich on more than one occasion addressed Eisenstein as Mose Mozeich in an amiable, if not familiar, sotto voce. Zina's mother spoke very eagerly to Sir Hugo about the persecution of the Russian priesthood by the Bolsheviks, but much of her eloquence was lost upon him. 
Sir Hugo's knowledge of her language, in spite of his long residence in Russia, was inexplicably remote. When he was asked if he could talk Russian well, he would say moderately. But, as a matter of fact, his ability to express himself in Russian was, I think, confined to hailing a cab in that language by crying out the word Izvozchik, and then, seated therein, muttering the word Poshol, which he usually mispronounced as push off, both words happily meaning literally the same thing, and so adequately similar in sound as to serve his purpose. General Bologevsky, on my left, was holding forth on the situation. Looks pretty hopeless, I remarked. Not a bit of it, rejoined the general. But they're retreating everywhere. On purpose, said the general. But whatever for? Well, there was a conference of generals, I presume, who have decided it. I think it a good thing myself. Why? Well, we'll entrap them. I am most pessimistic. I am perfectly optimistic, quite certain of victory. Why, General? Denikin. He is advancing very slowly. Ah, but he is about to enter great Russian territory. Well, what's there in that? Why, he explained, the great Russians are the only real decent Russians. I am a great Russian myself. I nodded with significance, as if to indicate that this made all the difference in the situation. Then, once again, Fanny Ivanovna sat silent. Perhaps she thought of her position, insecure and unconventional, disused, no longer wanted, and of her instincts, so discordant with her life, her instincts that had always been on the side of respectability, the purity of home life, the sanctity of marriage, and the very things, in fact, that had always been denied her, so much so that in her unstable, questionable position she had yet been stringently insistent on this aspect of their life, and always in her heart was reminded that she had no title to enforce that law, no claim, beyond a doleful craving for the decencies of usage and convention. Perhaps the presence of Nikolai Vasilievich's two other wives had served to remind her of the painful irony of her life. Perhaps the wine affected her with melancholy as it had affected me. Perhaps she pondered on her broken life, her sacrifices that had gone unnoticed, or pictured to herself her eventual return to Germany, the cruel astonishment of those for whom she, too, had sacrificed her life. And it may have occurred to her, as a belated afterthought in life, that possibly she had been sat upon too often and too much. But no, it was not quite that. There was something fatalistic and yet almost defiant in her look. A blend of optimistic resignation. What was it? What was she discovering? Why that smile? It was as though in desperation she had given him full rein and found, to her amazement, that he did not seem to pull as hard as when she held him tight. I perceived that my dinner-party promised well. I caught Fanny Ivanovna's eye and raised my glass, and instantly I had her glass refilled. 
my head began to swim. I discovered an agreeable warmth in my body, and the expression that had come on my face seemed to be getting out of my control. "'Fanny Ivanovna,' I cried, "'never mind my expression. I know it is stupid. It has come on of its own accord, and I cannot quite remove it, though I feel that a smile may develop of itself at any moment.' "'Look,' Nina said to Sonia, "'how awfully funnily his face changes from smile to seriousness. Look!' I smiled a drunken smile. "'Look, there again!' I should have explained here that I had a passion for that white and pasty substance that Russians eat at Easter, Pascha, and when I was in Russia I made it my habit to eat it in and out of season. I had a pyramid of considerable dimensions locked up in the safe, and now at the close of dinner the secret was betrayed. A dash was made for it. The guests armed themselves with knives, forks, and spoons, and dug into the substance, and cleared it away in less than twenty minutes. They then lay moaning and suffering not a little from its effect on their abounding stomachs. We were jolly, exuberant, self-centered, and sentimental. I felt distinctly pleased with myself. I knew not why, that is the secret of good wine. Some people laughed, others, after the manner of the Slav, were fain to weep and outside there raged the snowstorm of a Siberian winter night. Fanny Ivanovna, Magda Nikolaevna, Chechedek, Eisenstein, Nikolai Vasilievich reclined on sofas and armchairs, smoked and sipped liqueurs, and Sonia, Nina, Vera, Zina, and her sisters, and Baron Wunderhausen made a noise in the adjoining rooms and did wild things with the furniture. Uncle Kostya stood on the hearth-rug, dazed and very red in the face, and held forth at great length, his Russian soul a reservoir of overflowing feeling. "'I feel positively strange,' he said. "'I swear I never felt like this before. I nodded, do you know, to some point in an argument with which at the same time I happened to agree—' and, to my great embarrassment, I somehow kept on nodding quite in spite of myself, and keep on nodding. Do you see me, Fanny Ivanovna? Though the portion of the argument with which I had expressed agreement long died in oblivion. I know it is the wine. It is good wine. And, to make a long story short, I am drunk but I don't care. This is an exceptional night. It is a memorable night. Fanny Ivanovna and Nikolai Vasilievich and Magda Nikolaevna, Moise Moiseich, Zina, Sonia, Nina, Vera, Knyats. I swear I never felt so near to you as I do feel tonight. I feel beastly sentimental. I feel that I could howl aloud. I feel that presently I will go round and kiss each one of you in turn. Look to your own hearts. What is the use of pretending? 
we are all one family and nikolai vasilievich our dearly beloved much respected nikolai vasilievich is our parent and guardian he stood by us well in our hour of need his task has been an uphill task but has he complained of us not once he has borne the burden of many families without a sigh of protest speaking for myself we men of letters have to lean for our support on stalwart men like nikolai vasilievich and it is indeed largely on their generous help that art and literature must depend as you know we men of letters are no business men but if as a writer and a student of life and human nature i may presume to give advice don't lose courage nikolai vasilievich remember we are all behind you we shall follow you if need be to the end of the earth courage nikolai vasilievich keep hard at it keep hard at it we became agitated we all spoke at once perhaps for no other reason than that we had been deprived of speaking for so long and then suddenly we subsided for on the floor above us occupied by a russian family someone was playing the piano it was chopin we listened to the music and grew still and our souls were all music as though he had touched their strings and the house seemed charmed and the gruff siberian knight looked in through the window and listened in silence for his is the grace and sweet melancholy of romance and his the laughter of silver trumpets and tears as bright as the dew at dawn his sorrows are no graver than the sorrow of the gold-red sunset and his sobs are the sobs of the sea the echo of the waves weeping on the rocks and it has all been to him a dream in music and when we hear it we dream with him and fanny ivanovna said nikolai vasilievich is now a widow a thought flashed across my brain fanny ivanovna i cried i had meant to ask you what was that funeral procession you all followed yesterday my husband's she said and i was struck unpleasantly by her tone of mirth and triumph abraham yes smiled nikolai vasilievich she is a widow now a merry widow and fanny ivanovna laughed in a loud and jarring manner it seemed odd why i had not guessed so obvious a candidate when i had seen the funeral procession pass by my window and had supposed that the corpse had been some victim of the gaida outbreak we all felt that it was the best thing for the man and nothing more was said on the subject eisenstein in an impossible condition sang sentimental gypsy songs to his own accompaniment on the piano and his voice was such that the cat hid itself in the house and could not be found for three days afterwards and nikolai vasilievich was assisting him in a rather timid staccato baritone sonya nina vera zina and her sisters baron wunderhausen and i 
were jazzing in the adjoining room. Fanny Ivanovna and Magda Nikolaevna, seated side by side on the sofa, were discussing, somewhat timidly it seemed, Magda Nikolaevna's proposal that they should start a millinery establishment together, procuring fashionable Parisian hats from Peking and Shanghai, and selling them at a great profit in Vladivostok. And Zina's father was sleeping, mouth wide open in his chair. Chapter 10 She was going along quickly, wrapped in the familiar fur, and it was snowing merrily. Nina! She turned round and stopped, smiling, and the bright white winter day seemed to be smiling with her. It was the day of the social revolutionary coup d'etat. Early in the morning troops of revolutionary partisans had occupied the city peacefully and taken possession of the public buildings to wild cheering from the local crowds. The Russian national flag had been hauled down and a red one hoisted in its stead. Processions had appeared with revolutionary banners, and the town was decorated in red. "'Have you heard the news?' she said. "'Pavel Pavlovich, the baron, has fled to Japan overnight without telling us a word.' "'Of course he was in danger of being arrested by the Reds,' I said. "'But I suppose he'll come back some day.' She shook her head. "'I don't think so.' "'What does Sonia think?' "'She's glad.' glad. Yes, she was going to leave him herself, to marry Holdcroft. But now... Now what? Now he's left her. Well, all the better, then. Saves trouble. It's humiliating. We went on together, and, nearing home, we cut through masses of new snow. It was one o'clock. The sun shone yellow. She put her hand into my coat pocket. Tender flecks, falling from the sky, would linger on her brows and lashes. We fumbled and wrangled in the snow, and with that bird-like look of hers, she said, "'Today I like you.' At the American headquarters dance last night she had been strangely, inexplicably hostile, and Fanny Ivanovna had made it worse by exhorting her to dance with me against her will." and, of course, there were Ward and White and Holdcroft. I remember sitting there that night with a sense of injury. What was the matter? Had I usurped too many of her dances? I felt as a man might feel who, in a moment of particular good will towards mankind, discovers that his watch has been pickpocketed. I said nothing but strove to put it all into my look. She came up to me, rapturous, delicious. There was about her that night a disquieting, elusive charm. I told you that I love you. What else do you want? She said it with just that torturing proportion of smile and earnestness that you could not tell how it was meant. And very likely that was just how it was meant. I remember I ransacked my soul for something stinging. You can't love, I said. You're not a woman, you're a fish. It is unfair to analyze love reasoning, unless in a similar emotional temperature. The dance over, our coats on, we sat and waited for the car, Nina looking rather sulky. And today what a change the sunshine has wrought. 
We reached their house. Come in, she said. No. She went in, took off her coat, and while I lingered, came back and stood on the steps. You'll catch cold like that. She shook her head. I wish, said I, that women would propose to men. I should love to say, Oh, why can't we remain just friends? She looked at me. You would say it to me? Jokingly, of course. I shan't propose then. And if I said it seriously, would you propose then? Yes, she laughed. Aren't we supposed to be engaged, though? Are we? I think so. We'll marry, but divorce at once, she said, and live separately and meet only once a year. And then the door opened, and Nikolai Vasilievich said somewhat angrily to me, "'Either come inside or go. She'll catch cold standing here with nothing on.' And as he vanished, he rather slammed the door. "'Go in, Nina, or he'll be angry.' "'Take no notice of him. None of us take any notice of him. That's why he's angry.' "'Then I'll go in,' I said. And we both went in, and heard Fanny Ivanovna saying, "'Believe me, Sonia, it's all for the best.' If you like, send him a postcard with good riddance on it. That's all you need to say. And as I listened, it transpired further, for misfortunes never come alone, that Baron Wunderhausen was not a baron, not even Wunderhausen. Sonia was downcast. What the devil does it matter anyhow, argued Nikolai Vasilievich, above all now that he was gone, whether he is a baron or no baron. Wunderhausen or no Wunderhausen. But Sonya would not hear of it. That he should have left without telling her a word. That he should have lied to her all these years. Also, she had always scoffed at him for his title, thought it ridiculous, almost a deliberate affectation. But now that the truth had been revealed to her, and she knew that he had never had a title, she felt that she had been insulted rudely, married under false pretenses. Well, she would insist on a divorce. She would take good care that she was the first in the field to insist on it. Holdcroft was extraordinarily attractive. He seemed rather keen on Vera, though. But how beautifully he danced! And just that moment the gramophone, which Vera was fiddling with, broke loose into an intoxicating one-step. Nina, standing by it, echoed at the end of each refrain, "'My cellar!' as the music galloped into syncopation. "'Whose is the gramophone?' It was Olya Olenin's, the timid football little niece of Uncle Kostya. "'There they are!' cried Sonya. Three U.S. naval uniforms appeared in the window. "'If only we had more room here!' sighed Fanny Ivanovna but how scrupulously clean she kept the little that there was of it. "'I'm forever blowing bubbles,' hissed the gramophone. <whistles> whistled Nikolai Vasilievich, and, forgetful of her prodigal baronial spouse, Sonya dodged the chairs and sofa in the embrace of Holdcroft, while Kniatz sat in his corner seat, a little in the way, and read his paper and sucked sweets. "'You want to go?' 
Fanny Ivanovna looked at Nikolai Vasilievich with a solicitude that suggested a desire to anticipate his wishes. All right, we'll have our tea now. Sonia, Nina, Vera, tea. There's no hurry, he calmed her. During tea he was hilarious. He had been out in the streets and mixed with the crowds. What hilarious, happy crowds! The change had come about at last. Something would happen now. He said he thought it would be a few days only till the thing was finally settled. He meant to go and see something of the new ministers. A quite decent government, it seemed, and what good order, all things considering. The social revolutionaries had a double platform. They appealed to those who had no use for international militarism on revolutionary grounds, and to those who had no use for revolution on national grounds. And Nikolai Vasilievich thought that such broad-minded, reasonable people could not fail to see his point as regards the gold mines. I sat listening to him, and in my influx of sudden happiness, eating more than I really wanted to, for I felt she was à moi once more. He went out at last, and Fanny Ivanovna shut the door behind him. She looked at me, smiled, and then heaved a little sigh. "'I let him do as he pleases,' she said. "'Perhaps it's better so. We'll see.' As it darkened, we took Olya home, and, trailing our feet in the deep snow, carried the uncomfortably heavy gramophone, and marched in various formations, halted, marched again, and then, towards the climax, carried Nina in a burial procession. At the Olenins we danced again, I claiming Nina, and the three American boys having to put up with what was second best. Madame Olenin, a suckling in a jumper at her breast, stood in the doorway and watched. A ten-years-old military cadet had followed her into the room, and also stood in the doorway, in a civilian overcoat, and gaped at us. "'Our Peter,' said she, "'is a loyal little monarchist, and refuses to take off his shoulder-straps in spite of the red coup d'état.' The maternal hand stroked the offspring's hair in a tender gesture. "'But I made him put on this civilian overcoat on top.' It isn't safe, you know. I came up and cuddled little Fanny in a rather inefficient fashion and lavished unmitigated praise, as is the classic way when talking to a mother of her babe. And then little Fanny, as is the classic way with babies, for no apparent cause, began howling, howling without rhyme or reason. I was made to play the piano and I was pleasantly aware that Nina advertised me and showed me off as though I was her own special merchandise. The snow in the yard was pink from the sun as we jumped about on the sofa. She took water in her mouth and blew it out into my face, whereon I got her into a corner and slapped her hard, while the others looked on in amusement. She was trying to bite my hands, and then, as we went out, she would insist on fastening my overcoat. The others trailed behind, and we could hear their laughter growing fainter as we walked ahead. The snow creaked agreeably beneath our feet. It was five o'clock, and there were the first signs of twilight. We passed the somber silhouette of their little wooden house. 
Oh, how sad were these things in the winter! Darkness was swiftly setting in. We crossed the wood. The tall pine trees, covered with a thick coating of snow, stood mute and dreaming in the twilight. Only their peaks moved ever so gently to and fro, murmuring some vague complaint. Then, suddenly, we came out into the open and saw the sea. Clad in an armor of ice, it was as smooth as a mirror. Here and there a monstrous snow-covered lump rose from the surface. The sky was gray and fretful, and darkness fell upon us with every minute. The sun, as it set, slowly cast a feeble red flame on the sea chained in ice, and the crescent moon spread a yellow light over the surface, glimmering in varied colors on the ice, the snow, the glaciers. The wind strengthened, and the frost pricked at my ears. Say something, say something. What shall I say? Why, you're worse than Knyats, I exclaimed. She smiled. Say that the sea is a dazzling sight, that the moon is, well, anything you like, that the sun is red copper. She looked as though all this was nothing, but she alone was real. Why falsify the tone? It's there. I can see it. Is this not beautiful, then? You're an amazing creature. One doesn't know which side to get hold of you. I talk to you about... about... this... a florid gesture to the sea. You tell me it is false. This... an imitated florid gesture. Is all right, but please don't talk about it to me. She was silent. I liked you this morning, she said then, but now... You see, the trouble is, said I, that you can't talk of anything but foxtrots. Last night at the American dance, she said, I danced with Ward. I know, I saw you, I said in a tone of condemnation. He's very nice. I like him, but I can't talk of anything to him. He asked me, do you like foxtrots? I said, yes. And when later on we danced the waltz, he said, do you like waltzes? And I said, yes. And he said, I like them too. There you are, I cried triumphantly. You've got to stick to me and sack all the rest. You are nice, she said. And there are days when I like you, though you never know when they are. But I can't talk to you. And she added, I'm going home. The sun contracted and grew more red and feeble as the moon shone brighter and cast an even yellow light upon the space around us. Fretful, fantastic shadows flitted across the ice. Objects about us grew black. Darkness was now hard upon us. We returned by moonlight that glimmered on the snow. CHAPTER Ten. Six weeks elapsed, and the snow was melting in the valley. When the sun appeared behind the trees, the birches, steeped in water, had that silvery appearance which is beautiful beyond measure. Spring was in the air. It was a dinner, a formal, drunken, tedious affair that I must needs attend. I sat between General Bologevsky and a British flag lieutenant 
who had fallen in love with Nina at first sight, and now drank in greedily everything I had to say about her. In this building, not so long ago, other men had met their death. At each coup d'etat this house had been besieged. Fugitives had taken shelter in these rooms. Even on this sofa a body had been stabbed to death. And now we reveled noisily. The dark, dark night of early spring was a breathing, watching presence. The bare, white-plastered walls seemed to prick their ears. What has happened? Nothing. The nights were drawing in. The three sisters had gone to a dance, and so had Ward, White, and Holdcroft. When now I called on them, more often I would find the older folks alone. How melancholy, but strangely fascinating, were these evenings, this gathering of souls dissatisfied with life, yet always waiting patiently for betterment, enduring this unsatisfactory present because they believed that this present was not really life at all, that life was somewhere in the future, that this was but a temporary and transitory stage to be spent in patient waiting. And so they waited, year in, year out, looking out for life, while life, unnoticed, had noiselessly piled up the years that they had cast away promiscuously in waiting, and stood behind them, while they still waited. What Nikolai Vasilievich actually waited for was best known to himself. His hopes had been built up on the assumption of a sudden recovery of his gold mines, a possibility he connected somehow with political developments in the Far East. It would not be fair to examine critically the grounds he had for this ambitious expectation, from any rational standpoint. Nikolai Vasilievich had built up enchanted castles of a rare magnitude and beauty upon this somewhat flimsy and elusive foundation, and he could not have now examined this foundation with an open mind without ruining his dreams. And Nikolai Vasilievich had further committed himself to the continued sustaining of illusions by identifying in his mind certain definite promises of a financial nature that he had made to Zina and her people, his daughters, Fanny Ivanovna, his wife and Kniatz, with his dreams, indeed in such a manner that his dreams had become vital realities to them, and this important consideration had served the further purpose of giving his dreams all the more the appearance of realities. He had private doubts, of course, but he brushed them aside in a manly manner. He could not afford to do otherwise. He waited for political changes. He was not clear in his mind as to what particular political changes would serve his purpose. He did not know. He was wise enough to know that, in conditions so complex and multitudinous as those in Siberia, there was no telling which particular political combination would affect his gold mines favorably. Moreover, he did not want to know. He did not want to know because he felt that, if he knew, his happiness henceforth must needs depend on the single chance of that particular political combination, alone likely to affect his gold mines favorably, coming into power. Rather did he like to think that his happiness depended on any kind of change on the political horizon, 
a more than likely possibility. At last he saw hopeful signs. The social revolutionary partisans had occupied the city, and from day to day he waited for an indication of their attitude towards his gold-mines. This indication came to hand at last when they called for him and put him into prison for having taken part in that lamentable punitive expedition of which, as a matter of fact, he was the chief victim. His term of imprisonment, unpleasant as it was, had yet served the good purpose of further cementing his multitudinous family. His daughters, Zina, Chichedek, Knyats, Fanny Ivanovna, his wife, Eisenstein, Uncle Kostya, Zina's father, and the bookkeeper Stanitsky all met in their frequent calls in the cell of the breadwinner. On dragged the dinner. General Bologevsky at my side was telling me that he was at heart a democrat, that he sincerely wished to see a government that was more democratic than the old damn-rotten government under the Tsar. Yes, his heart, he said, was democratic, and even when he was in Tokyo he could not suffer himself, yes, he could not suffer himself, he put his hands upon his heart, big and strong as he was, to be pulled by a dwarf slave. So he placed the coolie in his rickshaw and pulled the man himself. And yesterday he went with his own chink cook to a Chinese theatre and sat out the whole performance in an incredible atmosphere. Now, was that not democracy? And if it wasn't, well, he questioned what democracy really was. He did his bit. What else did the people want? They were never satisfied. And then that unknown quantity, that strange old man Sir Hugo, fired off a jewel. Sitting opposite, I could hear a captain of the U.S. Navy talking of the decline of discipline, to which Sir Hugo answered in his heckling manner, "'Well, Captain Larkin, I don't think I can agree with you, and I should be inclined, if you'll allow me, to suggest to you that your people are not as disciplined as our men, or, should I say, they have not had the same experience of discipline.' "'Well, maybe yes, maybe no,' said the other. "'It seems, though, Sir Hugo, they have done about equally well in the war, anyhow.' whereon Sir Hugo was convulsed with merriment. "'Splendid fellow, Captain Larkin! Good, very good! Splendid! Ha, 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 ha! You're a diplomat, Captain Larkin, you know. Oh, yes, you are. Very clever, very diplomatic indeed. Ha, 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 ha! I notice you use just the right word. Ha, 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 ha! You say, it seems. You're not committing yourself now, are you, hey?' Captain Larkin ate his fish in silence. What was the world indeed coming to? On dragged the dinner. The black panes of the big bare windows stared unflinchingly. Yes, the three sisters had gone to a dance with the three American boys, and I could picture to myself that other private little dance when I had quarreled with her deliberately to bring matters to a head, to know where I stood but the quarrel had not come off, and her attitude was as ever unintelligibly vague. Then I sat there and watched her outline. What a girl! In her sidelong, bird-like look. In came two Italian tenors, 
fingering their guitars. We leaned back in our chairs, watched the cigar smoke descend on the wine, listened how the southern mellow voices defied the breaking rigor of the night of early spring. "'Tomorrow,' said the flag-lieutenant, "'at seven-thirty comes the icebreaker, and off we barge into the open.' Toreador, toreador, tam tram taram, two vermouths. That's the stuff to give em. Hand upon heart, the singers emptied the glasses. Stenkarazin, stenkarazin, the Russian robber song, enjoyed the table. Ah, je ne connais pas, monsieur. And we sang the Russian robber song as best we could, and the Italianos both joined in as soon as they had got the hang of it. Dinner over, we sat about anyhow, and another soloist, a Hungarian prisoner of war, half wailed, half sobbed a Russian song that ended with the desperate refrain of never, 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 never. The Russian general's eyes blinked in the cigar smoke. What's that play, you remember? Those are not tears. It's the juice of my soul, the juice of my soul. Then the old Hawaiian band, we had been well provided for that evening, played Tell Me by request. They played this at the dance, said the flag lieutenant. Tomorrow at seven-thirty we're off. I wonder if we shall ever come back. Those are not tears. It's the juice of my soul. As we passed into the anteroom, the company was getting rowdy. A French colonel, cigar in mouth, was throwing gramophone records on the floor as though they were quoits, adding, with a blissful sidelong smile at me, les disques. Somebody had released the gramophone, and a rowdy one-step was the result. Cocktails, wine, liqueurs, whiskey, 7.30, the icebreaker, the juice of my soul, never, never, les disques. Like dregs they had been stirred from the bottom, swam up, and began to flow hither and thither with the rolling of the tide. Abrupt impressions crowd my brain. Nina spring a trip by motor to the garden city we lose our way a bearded student of the intellectual brand offers to see us through gets in next to the chauffeur and directs him but presently loses his way too this hill says he as if to justify himself used to be on the right bank of the river heaven knows what's happened to it says i she laughs oh how she laughs we arrive at last, and, oh, horror, we meet her father and Zena. We lunch at the new casino restaurant. The old proprietor shakes his clients by the hand respectfully, but bullies the waiters. It is Sunday. The sunlit sea, too, has a festive, leisurely appearance. We walk into a public park with a notice, Cattle and other ranks not admitted. Supper at the casino restaurant. When evening comes, the bullied waiters, conscious of the approach of the Red Army, demand a share in the profits in addition to their wage. The old proprietor shouts louder than he would, and looks to the public for moral support. "'None of your Bolshevism here, please!' he shouts, putting on in emphasis what he lacks in weight, and they can all feel that he is frightened of them. We talk to two Russian soldiers— 
One of them has never heard of Admiral Kolchak. "'You fool,' says the other. "'He's that English general who gives you clothing.' We return in the early evening. The sky is flushed, the dachas steeped in foliage. The seaway sunlit root. Pink light everywhere. The approach of summer, the feeling that we should act in unison with nature, and the crushing, curbing sense that we dare not, oh, for so many reasons. The waiting, the suspension of plans, owing, among other things, to the civil war. The prevailing Russian atmosphere, chronic uncertainty. The wildflowers in the grass at the roadside. The American regimental dance that night. She looks at me, sits near me. I help her on with her coat, then to step into the car. And the nocturnal, moonlit journey homeward. Youth, her splendid, wonderful youth. How trivial, how great. How much, how little. That's how we live. A flash here, a scent there. It's gone, and it's the devil to recapture. The big black window panes still stare at you indecently. That's why somebody throws a bottle through them. The gramophone shoots painful memories through my feverish brain. Now she is dancing with them. They are playing rugger with a crumpled piece of paper on the floor. Oh, the pictures! Somebody has set a match to the imitation palm tree. Good job! And somebody else has poured a bottle of whiskey into the piano. Uproarious shouts. A fat, flabby major stands on the table, shouting, Charing Cross! All change here! And then begins to sell the furniture by auction and imitate a Bolshevik speaker all in the same breath. I am dragged up on the table. Shouts of, Speech! Speech! My mouth begins to move, but the voice seems to be coming out of an empty barrel. Both I and they seem someone else. The table begins to sway like a ship, a pendulum, and I feel that I am being supported on my legs only by some outward spirit. Les disques. The juice of my soul. Ha, 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 ha. I laugh feebly, but awfully funnily as I am being carried out under the arms. My room. Never, never. Oh, the bed is a merry-go-round, a spindle. I dash out onto the floor. The floor revolves the other way. Damn! Somebody ties a wet handkerchief round my head and says, You're a brick. Nina. Le disque. Youth. Your splendid wonderful youth. End of section 7